If you have evidence of wrongdoing by any member of the Trump campaign, present it to the damn grand jury. If you have evidence that this president acted inappropriately, present it to the American people. Whatever you got, finish it the hell up. That was Trey Gowdy, the chairman of the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee, delivering a stern message last week to Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein about Robert Mueller's Russiagate investigation. Enough already, Gowdy told him. Let's see what you got and get this thing over with. It may have seemed to some that Gowdy was pressing Rosenstein to wrap up the Mueller probe or even shut it down for partisan advantage to remove an electoral threat to the GOP during this year's congressional elections. But it's not just Republicans who are starting to talk this way. A former Watergate prosecutor who believes there is already enough evidence on the table to charge Trump with obstruction of justice is also getting impatient. The months-long back and forth about whether Trump will sit down for an interview, he argues, has become pointless and a waste of time. It's a debate that could well be coming to a head very soon, during what is starting to look like a momentous month for Trump's White House, with a new Supreme Court pick about to be announced, quickly followed by a Trump-Putin summit in Helsinki. We'll talk to that veteran Watergate prosecutor and to Barack Obama's former White House communications director about what he sees as the insidious role played by Fox News on this week's episode of Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just Russia is a ruse. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, uh, Danny, this is starting to feel like uh, this this could be a summer of showdowns uh, for Trump. Uh, We've got, of course, the uh, Supreme Court pick coming on Monday. That's almost certainly going to provoke a uh, giant Washington battle royale. And then, uh, you know, a showdown of sorts with uh, with Putin uh, when they meet in Helsinki. But the sleeper in all this, one that hasn't been quite as much in the news recently, is the Mueller probe. And what a lot of people think uh, is um, uh, some move he's going to make very quickly. Yeah. And it's interesting that um, the uh, criticism um, of Mueller or at least the pressure, the growing pressure on him to actually, you know, put up or shut up. Uh, is coming from uh, both ends of the political and ideological spectrum. Um, And, you know, I get it. Um, And I think uh, there are reasons that Mueller himself uh, will want to act sooner rather than later and not take this all the way into uh, the midterm elections. Um, The last thing Mueller wants is to be criticized in the way that James Comey was uh, for, uh, you know, somehow... Uh, affecting, um, you know, being some sort of external force that affects the election with, say, an indictment um, that comes uh, soon before people uh, vote. Um, 
and, and you know, he's a cautious guy and he's going to want to avoid that. But that same caution, uh, I think, could keep him from taking action before the election because uh, if he does have a case, he's going to want to make sure it's ironclad um, and that he doesn't jump the gun. Um, so if I'm Bob Mueller right now, um, I'm feeling uh, a significant amount of pressure um, uh, and, and I think he's going to have to try to put that aside. I, I should point out one thing uh, we forgot to mention is we also have the Manafort trial coming up in just a few weeks. And uh, an expectation, as prosecutors usually do, uh, Mueller's probably held back uh, some uh, some interesting evidence about Mueller's ties, some of it about Manafort's ties to uh, various Russian actors, particularly the uh, oligarch Oleg uh, Deripaska, uh, a billionaire very close to Putin and uh, a guy who the FBI thinks has uh, some serious organized crime ties. Um, but before we get to um, uh, what's on the cards for Mueller and what he should or shouldn't be doing uh, in the next uh, few weeks and months, uh, we do have this Supreme Court uh, pick. And there's no question that is going to be sucking up a lot of oxygen in Washington. There's a lot of anticipation uh, and signs that uh, both sides of the political divide are gearing up. Up, uh, to be running attack ads or support ads and uh, trying to influence the debate. And we've got just the guy to uh, talk about it with us, uh, our uh, our colleague, uh, Alex Nazarian. Uh, Alex, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me, guys. Um, Alex, you've been covering uh, the uh, Supreme Court uh reality pick, show. The reality show. So uh, tell us now, um, who's it going to be? Oh, sure. Well, uh, it'll be one of the people he interviewed. Uh, you know, the the betters say it's Brett Kavanaugh, but uh, apparently um, Raymond Catledge's stock has been rising, and um, you know, Amy Coney Barrett remains beloved by the conservative, uh, socially conservative base. So they, they each one has a compelling argument, and each one has uh, strikes against him or her that could. Make the make the uh, confirmation process difficult. Although, really, the Republicans have a very strong hand going uh, going in with a, with the Senate majority and with Pence the, giving uh, giving them the tiebreaker. So they're in very good position to have whoever it is confirmed. Well, we know a lot about Kavanaugh. Danny and I have known him for years. Of course, he was uh, a member of Ken Starr's team uh, investigating Whitewater and then the uh, Monica Lewinsky matter. Uh, he's kind of an establishment Republican, uh, somebody any Republican president uh, would have been looking very closely at. But uh, this other guy uh, from Michigan, uh, Raymond... Uh, Catledge. Catledge. He is, Who is he? Tell us about him. Why is he on the shortlist? Well, he is, he's 51 years old. He is um, on the Sixth Circuit, uh, which is based in uh, Cincinnati. And he's from Michigan, and that is a battleground state. So potentially nominating him does does make it difficult for somebody like Debbie Stabenow to vote against him. She's a, You're not suggesting this is going to be political. No, no, no it's all just based on, right, you know, uh, President Trump's profound, right. uh, you know, scholarship in the law. Um, he is he is someone who likes to uh, go to his cabin and write uh, without Internet, without distraction. He's a serious scholar. He's also an outdoorsman. So he sort of has this uh, 
He wrote a book on leadership uh, last year. So he really is, uh, he's quite frankly, uh, impressive in a number of ways, even if for the left, he represents um, a fairly disturbing choice. Um, you know, he has um, he has ruled on cases involving labor, involving surveillance powers in ways that uh, suggest he would be, as Hugh Hewitt called him, Neil Gorsuch 2.0. Um, Hugh Hewitt being the conservative uh, pundit, of course. Um, so there is a sense that he's a textualist. He has written that it is nihilistic to say that that a jurist cannot find the original meaning of a text. He really believes in the originalist interpretation of the Constitution. Aren't they all originalists? That's how they got on a Federalist Society picked uh, shortlist uh, for Trump during the campaign. Uh, These are people who follow in the Scalia-Thomas mode of of arguing that uh, the Supreme Court should be governed by what the actual words of the Constitution are and what the original meaning was, not that it's not a, as liberals would argue, a living document that can grow and expand our rights. No, for someone like Catledge, there is an original meaning to the words, and it is the duty of the judiciary to to faithfully interpret that meaning, not to try to modernize the meaning, uh, you know, of, of the of the law. So there's, so he would in fact represent. Although he did clerk for Kennedy, he would represent a break with many of Kennedy's decisions, sp- specifically in the social sphere, which is so important to conservatives. Now you also have Amy Coney Barrett, who'd be a very compelling choice. And again, none of this is political. But if one did want to excite the Republican base, if one did have an election, one wanted to win. She would be a good choice. Um, there was also a suggestion that she might be held for, should the seat come up, uh, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg seat. Um, so there's there are a lot of moving pieces, right? There are, there's also now a whisper campaign against Brett Kavanaugh. Where a whisper s- campaign. You know, then <laughs> it doesn't seem like anything anybody is whispering in this in, debate. In this White House, yes, yeah. but sort of uh, reminiscent of what happened to Harriet Myers during the, uh, George W. Bush's administration, where he's not seen sufficiently conservative on Obamacare and on abortion. Now that, and that's because he. You know, he issued some fairly he he issued some fairly nuanced writings on those issues. Where I actually don't, I think anybody looking at those, at what he's written on those two matters, would conclude he is most definitely a conservative. He may just not be conservative enough for but, for, for okay, Trump's but, base. But Alex, isn't it the case that all of these candidates um, on this on this short list are uh, widely viewed as as reliable conservatives? Um, and there might be a little uh, whining here and there. And obviously, um, interest groups um, want uh, you know their favorite person. But any of these people who are nominated, uh, barring uh, some unforeseen disclosure about their personal lives or something else, uh, they're going to be satisfactory, not just to the establishment, um, establishment conservatives, but to the base as well. Absolutely. We're talking about, quite frankly, far right and very right. I mean, this is this is where the, the debate. We're talking about a court where Roberts, John Roberts, is going to be the swing vote, um, and that's it. And remember, during the election, Hillary Clinton said, 
if Trump wins, he will have enormous power to reshape the federal judiciary. And he has done just that, not just at the Supreme Court, but at the lower level. So uh, that, that, like many other things she said, has, whether you support, endorse it or not, that has come to pass. He has, Trump has now uh, moved the court significantly to the right. And should there be another retirement, uh, for example, Ginsburg, or, you know, that, that would signal an even further rightward shift. So, so um, I want to talk for a second mm-hmm. about uh, uh, Brett Kavanaugh and uh, something that I think is particularly relevant to this uh, podcast and uh, that the listeners of Skullduggery uh, will be interested in and, and, and care about, um, which is um, and, and by the way, this is something that uh, could uh, tip uh, President Trump into into nominating uh, Kavanaugh, and this is a an, a law review article that Kavanaugh wrote in in the Minnesota Law Review, um, in which uh, he argued pretty forcefully that a president um, should be essentially immune from uh, civil litigation and from uh, criminal investigation. He acknowledges that the Supreme Court, in its you know unanimous decision in the in the Paula Jones case. Uh, said that a president uh, was not constitutionally immune, but he argues that Congress ought to pass a statute uh, essentially saying a president can't be sued um, uh, while in office. And then, and I'm going to read from this, uh, just a very brief passage from this law review article, he goes on to say, uh, in particular, Congress might consider a law exempting a president while in office from criminal prosecution and and investigation, including from questioning by criminal prosecutors or defense counsel. Sounds like, sounds like music to Trump's ears. Seems like we've both been reading the Minnesota Law Review. I, uh, that, that, I just think Trump may have a really hard time resisting putting someone out, uh, putting someone on the, the court um, who has uh, stated that view so clearly and so passionately, uh, given the fact that he thinks that he is the victim of a, what's the word? Witch hunt, I think. But uh, who, who nominated uh, Kavanaugh to the um, to uh, to the to the federal bench? George W. Bush. Uh, and I can't remember. Is Trump a fan of George uh-huh. W. Bush? Well, that's the other thing that's kind of funny. There was a uh, uh, story somewhere about um, how the Bush family was being asked not to go out and and uh, endorse uh, Brett Kavanaugh uh, publicly because that would hurt his chances. Yeah. Of course, Kavanaugh worked in the Bush White House actually before he he, um, he did after Starsley. He, he was that, on the White House in the White House Council. He office. was in the ca- White House Council's office. He was also staff secretary for three years. That, that's the person who kind of controls the 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 flow of paper um, into into the Oval Office. And in that law review article, he pointed out that both his experience um, on Ken Starr's uh, uh, special you know independent counsel team and that job as staff secretary made him acutely aware of the extraordinary pressures that presidents come under. Um, and since they have to deal with uh, such important issues as economic crisis or war, that they should not have to deal with lawsuits or criminal investigations while they're in office. Of course, he didn't seem to have that view <laughs> when he was working for Ken Starr, uh, preparing the uh, impeachment report well, no, but, uh, that but, Starr sent to Congress. Well, you know, wisdom comes from, uh, <laughs> you know, a, a lot of experience. He acknowledges that he was uh, uh, that he he held a different view at that time. Right. 
Right. Um, so, listen, speaking of uh, skullduggery listeners, we should um, get back to what is an obsession for us in skullduggery, and that is the uh, Robert Mueller uh, Russia probe. And um, we've got uh, just the guy to talk about it, uh, Phil Lacavora, um, the uh, former counsel to the Watergate special prosecutor, starting with uh, Archibald Cox uh, back in uh, 1973, uh, who has some uh, pretty interesting thoughts about uh, Robert Mueller's investigation into the Russia scandal. We're going to explore. Uh, Mr. Lacavora, thanks for joining us. Glad to be with you. The headline on a recent piece uh, you wrote in The Washington Post uh, is uh, Waiting for Trump is Pointless. And you made the argument that uh, Robert Mueller has spent too much time um, trying to get an interview with the president to complete the obstruction of justice phase of his investigation um, and that he should just proceed without the president. Why isn't the president's testimony crucial to that part of the investigation? Well, I think the president's testimony is not crucial either to the obstruction of justice piece of this or to the Russian contact piece. Uh, I started in my piece in the Washington Post uh, making the point that it seems to me, based on my experience uh, doing this sort of thing, that there's been more than enough time for Mueller and his people and his FBI agents, especially with the background of the counterintelligence investigation that had been underway for uh, a year or more before Mueller was appointed, to make a determination uh, both about uh, the Trump campaign and and President Trump himself in uh, active dealings with the Russians as they were trying to influence the 2016 election, and also to determine uh, whether or not the president's conduct specifically in firing uh, former FDI FBI director Jim Comey uh, was part of an effort by the president to obstruct justice. So the question is, uh, should that the, the, uh, the special counsel bring these two matters to a head, at least with respect to uh, President Trump, and do so without waiting for uh, this never-ending uh, saga of maybe he will and, and maybe he won't to continue playing out. My basic point is that Trump's testimony is not necessary to either of those things for the simple reason that whatever he said is not likely to be believable. So it's not going to be a legitimate basis for drawing a conclusion that either President Trump did or did not know about uh, cooperation with the Russians, uh, and it's also not going to be relevant in d- determining uh, whether, whether President Trump uh, intended to obstruct the due administration of justice, which is what federal criminal statute forbids. And the basic point is, uh, as uh, many people have observed, almost any fair observer has observed, uh, the president's uh, uh, statements simply uh, are irrelevant to the truth, or more putting it more pointedly, the truth is simply irrelevant to the president's statement. <laughs> and therefore, one cannot rely on the president, 
either to uh, exonerate the innocent, the allegedly innocent, or to convict the allegedly guilty. Um, and Mr. Lacavara, your, your larger point um, and concern is that by prolonging the investigation, um, that uh, that Mueller um, may uh, uh, unintentionally, but this could be the consequence, uh, tilt the scales um, in the uh, uh, midterm elections coming up um, in November, correct? Yes, that was what triggered uh, my op-ed. Uh, this could be a rerun of mid-2016 and then the, uh, uh, the, the later uh, amendment uh, by Comey when he announced uh, that he was reopening the, the Hillary Clinton investigation. Uh, I think there are good reasons for the standard Justice Department policy that uh, decisions regarding uh, political figures should not be made on the eve of an election if uh, reasonably possible to avoid. Uh, that was uh, the, the problem that has vexed everybody for the last two years because of Comey's uh, announcement that he was uh, uh, criticizing Hillary Clinton but not uh, proceeding to recommend criminal charges and then reopening the investigation. That, as the inspector general just said, was a a blunder of uh, classic magnitude, maybe decisive magnitude in terms of the presidential election. And so my point is, it seems uh, pretty clear to me that Mueller should not be letting this matter drag on until the fall when we're going to have crucial midterm elections if, as I think is likely to be the case, he's got enough evidence uh, now to determine what President Trump's role was or wasn't in both the Russia investigation, the Russian collusion investigation, and the obstruction of justice. Can he indict the president? I have written that he can. Uh, this was the position that we reached in the Watergate uh, era when this issue, of course, was very much in the forefront of the Watergate special prosecutor's investigation. Uh, the Justice Department has twice taken the position through the Office of Legal Counsel that a, a sitting president is not subject to indictment. Ironically, and perhaps coincidentally, both of those opinions were issued at a time when the incumbent president was under active criminal investigation, so it may be a self-interested opinion. Uh, but I think, as, as many other constitutional scholars think, the Justice Department analysis uh, will not stand up uh, under scrutiny. That, as a constitutional Mueller, matter, uh, uh, you, your position is is that uh, a sitting president can be indicted. But as a practical matter, do you think that uh, even if he had the evidence that Mueller, who is um, an officer of the Justice Department, would stray from uh, current Justice Department guidance um, and um, and in, and make that um, that decision to actually indict a sitting president? Uh, no, I, I think as you imply by your question, I think he would not uh, push the constitutional issue. And I think the matter is uh, is one of, uh, if you will, legitimate self-protection. Uh, the regulations under which uh, Mueller was appointed require that he adhere to Justice Department policy and one of the grounds for removing him from office would be uh, a deliberate or otherwise 
unjustified departure from Justice Department policy. If I could just explore this a little bit, if he if we accept that he can't really deviate from standard Justice Department policy without seeking a a new OLC opinion from the Justice Department, which would be highly unlikely he would get a favorable one from this Justice Department uh, that's different than the existing one. So all he could do is write a report that reaches conclusions. So let me just take you back to the point you were making about uh, James Comey's uh, improper Uh, conduct during the uh, uh, 2016 election in which he uh, editorialized on uncharged conduct by Hillary Clinton. Given that, given the conclusions of the inspector general about that conduct, given the conclusions of the prior conclusions of Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general on that um, uh, conduct by Comey, can Mueller if he can't indict the president, write a report that opines or editorializes on the uncharged conduct of President Trump? Yes, I think absolutely he's entitled to do that. In fact, he's he's required to do it under the Justice Department regs that apply to special counsel. Uh, First of all, his role is fundamentally different from Comey. Comey was the head of the FBI. Uh, The FBI is an investigative agency. It, It develops evidence. But as the inspector general emphasized, it's the role of the prosecutors in the Justice Department, that is lawyers in the criminal division or the other litigating divisions, that make a decision whether to file criminal charges based upon what the FBI investigation shows. But but the policy about not opining on uncharged conduct applies to prosecutors at the Justice Department as well as FBI officials. Yes, except under the uh, regulations applicable to special counsel. Those regulations, and this is similar to what used to be in the uh, special prosecutor or independent counsel statute that was passed after Watergate and existed for 20 or so years thereafter. The the regulations, like the old statute, contemplated or required now under the regulations that the uh, special counsel file a report with the deputy attorney general explaining what he found and explaining any decisions about whether uh, or not charges uh, were justified, even if not filed. If he files the charges, they become the subject of a public indictment. If he decides not to, he has to submit a report to the deputy attorney general, which explains why he's done that. What I would contemplate Mueller doing is filing such a report, if he's got the evidence, as I think he probably should have, about the president's own misconduct. And in that report, Mueller would say, I have not decided to push the constitutional issue about presidential indictability in light of the prevailing Justice Department opinion on that question. Nevertheless, uh, my investigation has found that the president engaged in uh, conduct that otherwise would constitute an obstruction of justice, or, and, the uh, president has also engaged in conduct that otherwise involved a conspiracy with foreign agents uh, to engage in uh, manipulation of confidential electronic records, such as the, he- the hacking of emails, or a, con- the, a conspiracy to uh, 
affect the election in violation of federal statutes. Uh, and that then puts the, the ball exactly where it should be on the uh, in the hands of the Deputy Attorney General uh, to decide, as he is entitled to, that this information should be forwarded uh, to the House Judiciary Committee for it to consider. So, um, Mr. Lacavara, I'd like to go back to uh, to Watergate for a minute, because um, on Skullduggery, we like to illuminate uh, the scandals of the present uh, with uh, history uh, the uh, scandals from from past history. Um, and a, a premise of your argument here is that uh, Mueller by this time should have the evidence to make a determination about um, about uh, President Trump's involvement in collusion or 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 or, or not having been involved in, in collusion. But there are some um, sort of key differences between uh, the Watergate investigation and where we are, as far as we know, in the Mueller investigation, which I just wanted to ask you about. Um, one is, uh, you know, when by the time Cox was appointed, um, the scandal had already been unfolding for many months. There was already a a pretty clear criminal act uh, committed in, um, I think, June of 1972, which was the break in at Democratic National Headquarters. Uh, there was uh, fairly clear evidence of, of a lot of other crimes that had been committed, including other break ins and tax fraud, illegal campaign contributions. You know, Watergate was this massive, sprawling conspiracy, but in some ways it was easier to bring indictments. I mean, aren't there some significant differences between Watergate and uh, the current investigation? And might it be the case that Mueller would need more time um, to bring those kinds of indictments? There are similarities and, and differences, obviously. No two situations in history are completely uh, identical. Uh, uh, in my op-ed, I mentioned that we did have these five sprawling investigations, but we were able to get uh, indictments returned in 10 months in all of the various areas. The, the similarity between Watergate and the current situation uh, is, uh, one, is one of the grounds for my concluding that uh, Mueller should be in possession with enough evidence to know what the president's role was and whether the president bore any culpability. And the point is, Mueller was appointed uh, 13 months ago in, in uh, May of uh, 2017, but he was drawing on investigations that went back at least a year, probably two years, uh, and these were the FBI counterintelligence investigations, which we now know involved a variety of uh, uh, FISA, the uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrants, uh, plus other uh, human intelligence efforts. So uh, Mueller was not uh, beginning from ground zero without any background uh, when he was appointed uh, in May of last year. The criminal, uh, the National Security Division uh, and the FBI had been looking into the underlying Russia investigation uh, for at least a year before that. So we're really talking about an investigation that's been unfolding actively for at least two years. And on the obstruction uh, issue, that focuses on primarily on uh, President Trump's uh, efforts to close down the investigation. One doesn't need an awful lot of uh, investigative time to make an assessment about what the president did and what his motives for doing it were. 
Um, wh- it sounds one... like, in in some respects, your uh, uh, your argument is similar to that of Rudy Giuliani. Uh, it's time for Mueller to uh, put up or shut up. Yeah, one of the things I try to emphasize in my op-ed piece is uh, I think that a vigorous investigation is necessary. I do not think this is a witch hunt, uh, and I. I have complete confidence in the integrity and professionalism of Bob Mueller and his team. So I part company with uh, Rudy on some of his basic premises, but I do agree for the reasons we've discussed that it's time to, to, uh, to take action or to close up this piece of uh, the uh, ongoing investigations uh, for the reasons that uh, we discussed. Otherwise, you're getting into the fall, and then you, you run into the, the risk that anything that he's, he does uh, is going to be uh, tainted in the view of one side or the other, or maybe both sides, as, as shifted with the, the Hillary Clinton email investigation, uh, on the theory that uh, making an announcement one way or the other right before the midterm elections uh, is going to be putting a thumb on the scale of a, an extremely important uh, midterm. And you don't think it would be possible to just sort of, you know, in the weeks before the election, sort of quiet things down, not take any public investigative steps that would interfere with the election, uh, you know, like indictments, uh, uh, subpoenas, press conferences, uh, and then pick it up again um, after the voters have had their say? I think it's in the national interest to move promptly to bring this matter to a head. I think the, uh, the public des- deserves to know, <laughs> to, just to put a riff on President uh, Nixon's comments, uh, whether their president is a crook. Uh, and I think that certainly applies to President Trump. And my view is uh, there should be enough evidence available to uh, Mr. Mueller and his team now, or I said by the end of the summer, uh, to make that call and to do whatever he's going to do and submit his report. Now, the the deputy attorney general may decide to sit on it one way or the other. I assume that if if the the Mueller report to the deputy were to be uh, one that showed that indicated that he'd found no significant evidence of culpability on the part of President Trump, uh, I'm certain that that would be released very quickly. Uh, if, by contrast, as I think is more likely in my view of what I've seen, uh, Mueller concludes that but for this tendentious issue of presidential indictability, uh, the president, there is evidence that the president uh, did engage in misconduct, either uh, in connection with the Russian meddling or obstruction of justice or both. And in that event, the deputy is going to be in a tough spot whether to get that out uh, or to try to sit on it until uh, after the election. Mueller's role ought to be to move this along promptly. Is part of your argument, um, I, I thought I maybe heard you suggesting this, but I'm not sure, is part of your argument that uh, Mueller may also have some obligation to uh, lay out what he knows uh, before the election so that the American people, as they uh, uh, as they uh, go to the voting booths, can factor that in? Or um, is that not what you were uh, suggesting? Uh, I, I do not think that it's appropriate for Mueller uh, to lay it out publicly. My point was that it's uh, 
it's his responsibility to, to lay it out uh, for the deputy attorney general so that the deputy then has to make the call about what to release and when to release it. But in, in either event, it seems to me, it's appropriate to bring the matter to a head for any public announcements to be about either exoneration or submission of evidence to the House Judiciary Committee uh, to be done well before uh, the uh, November midterms. Well, well before would suggest uh, pretty much uh, very, very soon. Uh, but just to put all cards on the table, you wrote over a year ago that you believe there was already enough evidence out there uh, to charge the president with obstruction of justice. Yes, uh, I, uh, I wrote in another op-ed in the Washington Post that based on the president's own uh, announced explanation for the reasons that he uh, uh, actually relied on in firing uh, Jim Comey, that he had effectively pleaded himself into the violation of the federal obstruction of justice statute. So I don't think there's much more that Mueller needed. Now, he, that's, that's all over a year ago. Uh, so I, I can't even imagine any plausible basis for uh, stretching out uh, the analysis of obstruction or no obstruction. Uh, the, the, more, the potentially more complicated um, piece of the investigation uh, that I'm that Mueller is obviously pursuing relates to collusion with the Russians, and he's obviously turning the screws on Paul Manafort in an effort to find out what more Manafort may be able to say, and he certainly uh, may be uh, waiting to see whether or not Manafort will will flip, although there's been no indication, even with the new indictment, uh, dramatically escalating Manafort's exposure, uh, that Manafort uh, is going to turn on the president. Well, let's uh, well, nothing public on that. Well, let's but let's let's just remember. Let's point out um, that uh, it wasn't until very recently that uh, Paul Manafort actually um, uh, entered prison. Prison. When you're behind bars, um, you <laughs> may you may think differently about uh, your your posture. That's an important part of the strategy, but I, I think in relatively short order, even though he's in the VIP wing of a detention center in Virginia, uh, Manafort is coming to grips with the uh, reality that uh, he may never see the outside again. The flip side of that, of course, about possibly flipping, is all the talk about a presidential pardon. And we know from uh, even from Bill Clinton's uh, conduct um, presidential pardons can be used to uh, uh, exonerate political allies who've gotten themselves in trouble in pursuing <laughs> uh, presidential uh, uh, policies. The uh, same mm -hmm. thing, of course, happened with uh, George H.W. Uh, Bush uh, uh, in connection with uh, the Iran Contra, the aftermath of the Iran Contra. Well, we we all remember the. Uh 
We all remember the Clinton pardons, uh, in, you know, although Mark Rich got the most attention. Uh, he also, on his last day, uh, pardoned Susan McDougal, his former business partner, who had been uh, uh, convicted of contempt for failing to testify before uh, Ken Starr's grand jury. But, I, you know, there, something struck me in listening to you that there's a bit of a contradiction in um, your arguments here. On the one hand, uh, you started out by saying Mueller shouldn't wait for uh, President Trump's testimony because nothing the president says would be believable anyway, yet you believe there's uh, a basis to charge the president with obstruction of justice based on his public comments. Um, so if the if the president's testimony under oath could not be believed, why should one accept the president's comments to Lester Holt uh, and make that the grounds for charging him with obstruction of justice? Wouldn't that be just as incredible as anything he said under oath to uh, Robert Mueller? No, I think if you just uh, take a step back and ask yourself what a jury would say if the president in his defense, let's assume Uh, that there's a criminal trial or indeed assume that there's a House Judiciary impeachment inquiry and you have laid out what I have pointed to as showing a substantial uh, case of obstruction of justice based on the president's admissions, it would be incredible for the president to say, well, I didn't really mean what I said, uh, so don't believe me. I really had a different uh, motive in mind. That's simply not the way a uh, trial works once once a defendant a, a putative defendant makes an admission it's hard for him to say uh, don't believe what i said it's a different matter if you're calling in the president to to ask whether or not uh, he uh, did engage in obstruction of justice you would expect him to say once the question is put to him that bluntly no of course i didn't but you it's highly unlikely that anybody would believe that. And the other part of it is uh, Trump's testimony about Russian collusion uh, is also likely to be incredible. So I don't think there's any uh, any basis to say you need his testimony on either phase of this investigation because you simply can't rely on things that he's publicly said about his motives uh, as sufficient. Just in a very quick personal aside, uh, Mr. Lacavara, I do want to say that I think when I started my first real reporting job was at Legal Times uh, in 1988, you were just becoming uh, D.C. bar president. And you will not remember this, but you were uh, kind to me and you took my calls and generous with your time and you and you still are. So we appreciate it and we would love to have you back on the show. Thanks for uh, coming on. We appreciate it. Very good. Bye now. Bye bye. We'll be right back with more Skullduggery. And now joining us is Dan Pfeiffer, Barack Obama's communications director when he was president, a co-host of Pod Save America, and author of Yes, We Still Can, Politics in the Age of Obama, Twitter, and Trump. Welcome to Skullduggery, Dan. Thanks for having me. So your book is really, it's a, like a firsthand account of how politics, the media, and the internet was transformed during the Obama presidency and sort of laid the groundwork for the election of Donald Trump. Um, and let's start like this. Since you were the Obama administration's message meister, um, why don't you distill your book for us into just its core message? What is it that you wanted to convey in the book? 
I wanted to look at how Obama dealt with the forces that led to Trump getting elected and try to extract lessons from them that could be applied to uh, the battles to come 2018, 2020. But I also wanted to offer people uh, some hope in what seems like a very dark time for progressives and Democrats around this country. Well, we definitely want to get to those lessons, uh, but let's start with uh, the chapter in your book that's gotten the most attention, which is called uh, Fighting Fake News. And it's really the story of the Obama administration's kind of first full-on confrontation with the fake news phenomenon. Uh, Obama attempts to try to end the birther conspiracy theory once and for all by producing that uh, long-form birth certificate. So tell us that story and why it was a, a pivotal moment or sort of inflection, inflection point in, in media and politics. Sure. So a little backstory for some of your listeners who may not have been paying. Or may, or, or, a little backstory for your listeners who, for 2008, may feel like a thousand years ago, as it does for me. But <laughs> is the idea that the rumor that Barack Obama was not born in America is something that existed long before Donald Trump started talking about it. It was a factor... It was sort of under the current in the 2008 campaign. There were a lot of email forwards going around, particularly in Iowa, saying that, a, that Barack, the people shouldn't support Barack Obama because he was not American. And then this also argument to Democrats that if he were to get elected, he would be illegitimate or nominated as a Democratic nominee. He would be an illegitimate nominee in the party, but once again lose. And so we dealt with that. We debated at the time whether we should deal with that, but it ultimately decided we needed to give our organizers and supporters something that they could take to their you know, well-meaning friends who were asking questions about this. And this was something that was happening sort of under the radar of the news. It was just sort of happening in the darker corners of the Internet. And so we put out uh, the live certificate, of, the certificate of live birth, which is the, the basically short version of your birth certificate. We thought that would put it to bed. It certainly worked in the context we were dealing with it, which was people who wanted to support Barack Obama feeling comfortable that this was false and they can move on with their lives and, and elect the president, which they did. Kind of forgot about it for a long time until 2011, uh, Donald Trump jumped on the scene and I, he was out promoting the next season of Celebrity Apprentice or re-signing a contract for Celebrity Apprentice or whatever else. And he was all over the news and he kept pushing this argument that Barack Obama was not born in America. He said he was going to hire private detectives to look for to get at the truth. And it was, at first, we were like, this is ridiculous. We are not going to justify this with any sort of response. But it started to crowd out our message because, as we've learned in 2016, Donald Trump is irresistible to uh, conversation in the media and on the Internet. And, you know, at the time, our press secretary started getting questions about it, which was Jay Kearney. It was coming up in some of Obama's interviews. And it never in, like, the most serious way, but just like, could you respond to Donald Trump? And then the news of the interview would not be, our economic plan, our health care plan would be what Obama said about Trump. And so Obama had an idea that I vehemently disagreed with at the time, which was that he should get his quote-unquote long-form birth certificate, which is the more formal version of the document, out. And, and why did you disagree with that? Well, I was operating, as I discuss in the book, under a sort of an old world view of, pol- of sort of political communications, which was you don't want to give oxygen to the crazy. And so I was operating both under that rule and then probably also a little stubbornness about I didn't want to give Trump in particular and the right wing uh, kooks who were, who, were, who were promoting this, uh, like 
the satisfaction of the president of the United States having to go formally present his birth certificate to say, look, people, I'm an American. And it seems a bridge too far, maybe even demeaning of the presidency. But Obama made up his mind, instructed uh, Bob Bauer, who was in the White House Council, to go get the birth certificate from the state of Hawaii. And and I went into, and when I found this out, and I went in to argue with Obama about it, he made it very clear that he had decided. But he had an idea that was different than I had thought of, which tended to happen over time, which was he wanted to use it as a moment uh, to teach, to talk not just about the proof he's an American, but also to talk about the dangers of our political culture getting wrapped around the trivial, and that that had consequences for the more important things we were talking about. Now, and his message was in some ways, when you go back and I recount some of his remarks that day in the book, a real sort of prescient take on what would come to pass in 2016. Um. You know, uh, I was uh, struck uh, by, first of all, I think you'd probably uh, admit uh, that uh, whatever message the president was trying to convey uh, by doing that uh, didn't really take hold, uh, given what uh, transpired after that. But, you know, you uh, spent a lot of time in, in one of the chapters before that going after Fox News. You say it's not a legitimate news outlet. It's a Republican propaganda machine. It's uh, one of the most insidious and dangerous forces in American politics. So I just got to say, here we are in a week when uh, we learn that the guy who's going to have your old job uh, is Bill Shine, the former (laughs) head of Fox News. So uh, how do you process that? <laughs> well, I mean, even if you put aside, I mean, there are two ways to look at the Bill Shine fire. One, one is as in the context of Fox sort of bringing the propaganda operation directly into the White House. The other way is it doesn't matter whether Bill Shine worked at Fox News or ABC News or GE. He also was someone who was fired for covering up decades of sexual misconduct from. Fox News executives at, like Roger Ailes and hosts like Bill O'Reilly. So it's, it is gross that he has a job in the White House, whether he works at Fox or not. So I think that's worth saying. But it is, you know, we, I think, I spent, as you point out, I spent a lot of time in the book talking about uh, Fox because Fox is a very, I, under, I knew Fox was bad, but even I, but I, and I was at the front lines of the Obama battles against Fox. I was very vocal about my feelings about Fox, but even I, underestimated the power of Fox and the dangers of it. And now we've seen it. It is a dangerous force in opposition. It is a incredibly insidious thing when leveraged as essentially state television in a lot of ways. I think it's very problematic. And I think Bill Shine being in there just like, it's sort of, it's sort of the equivalent of saying the quiet part out loud. Like we all know what's happening there. It's like, we might as well just bring the Fox guy in the White House and prove it. Um, yeah, but, you know, I, I just want to uh, 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 take a little broader look here. Uh, certainly your sure. points about Fox are interesting, but I was struck by a couple of passages in your book, uh, one in which you talk about how Barack Obama famously hates leaks. The press has, and you talk about how it wasn't just, and then you go on to say there are very legitimate issues around the ways in which the Department of Justice, Obama's Department of Justice under Eric Holder, pursued leak investigations, I'll add, more than any other 
uh, uh, president uh, before him. Um, but the leaks Obama really uh, uh, truly hates are, are not those leaks. It's the everyday leaks that fuel much of political journalism. Um, and then a few yeah. pages later, you're talking about how you hate press conferences. So I'm just trying to sort yeah. of process you're denouncing Fox for being a propaganda machine. But um, the, the president you worked for hated leaks. You didn't like press conferences. You know, it kind of sounds like you basically wanted to be a propaganda machine of your own and have the press lap up what you were feeding them without any pushback. I mean, and, and I'm sure that in your days of journal, you know, as a journalist, you would love it if all your sources would just tell you everything you wanted without even having to work for it. Uh, but but I still do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So everyone wants to do their job as well as they possibly can. So let me take a couple points here. I, I, I say in the book that press conferences are interactions with reporters are very important. I make a, I make a point that press conferences are uh, that there is a real like dissonance between my job of getting the message out and the and press conferences and they're challenging and they're not they're not the best way to do it and they're often not taken as serious the, the seriousness with which they are argued for by the media the White House press corps are not are then thus not always taken as seriously when they happen. And I think that that's the thing worth noting. But, that, but I also go on to point out that they should happen. They just don't know that they're the best way for a communications director to get the message out. And the leak, like, and so on the leaks, there's two separate points. One is uh, of course, every administration should hate leaks. It's like that's your job. You want to do your job. You want to get the message out. And I don't know that the political world is served better by uh, – and, and I would say this also, that in the book, I try to distinguish between types of leaks, right? Like, there are, there are whistleblower leaks, right? And we can have a debate till the end of time about Edward Snowden, but that would fit potentially in that category, right? As someone who, was, who, who discovered what they found to be now something wrong in government and well and told the press, right? That made my job a lot harder, and, we, we, and there's a real question about the criminality involved around classified leaks, so that's one thing. The kind of leaks that we read about every single day in the Trump administration about whether John Kelly got laughed at in a meeting or Jared Kushner was the one who connected stuttering John to Trump or why everyone hates Sean Spicer and all of that. And then these sort of readouts of internal uh, White House discussions, I think, are not well, those are things that no White House would want. And I don't think and I think that it's sort of reporters jobs to try to dig those up and. White House's jobs to prevent those from happening. And that's, I don't think that fits within sort of somehow preventing, no one's preventing you from uh, trying to get those leaks. It's like by preventing you from doing your job, but it's part of the White House's job to prevent, a, to create a culture of loyalty among each other so that, uh, so that they, people don't feel a need, feel that the only way to advance their position within the process of the White House is to do it through the pages of Yahoo, for instance, right? Um, look, uh, we had uh, Jim Risen on a few weeks ago. Uh, here's a guy, yeah. a, a journalist who, uh, who, in the course of a leak investigation pursued by the Obama J Holder Justice Department, had his credit card records pulled, his phone records, all sorts of personal information uh, scooped up uh, to try to prove that uh, somebody had leaked to him. And I just wonder, from a serious policy point of view, um, 
Do you uh, see that there might be a connection between uh, a president who, as you wrote, famously hates leaks and the fact that that president's uh, Justice Department um, prosecuted more leakers than anybody in history? I, I would think that would only to be the case if you believe that there were that that there was a that the white that the White House was contrary to long-standing governing norms telling the Justice Department. No, it doesn't. It doesn't have case. to be directing them to bring a particular case, but you set a tone from the top, and if the top uh, if the top says we don't like leaks, uh, we're infuriated by them, uh, that that message gets trans uh, transmitted down the chain. I, I mean, I think that that is a stretch to think that someone could take something. No White House in the history of time has ever liked leaks. No one has ever said they've liked leaks. They've all said they dislike leaks. I very much remember the Bush administration folks, whether it was Carl Rove or Dan Bartlett or Karen Hughes, decrying leaks. I remember Republican press secretaries decrying leaks. I remember Mike McCurry decrying leaks to say that a White House decrying leaks is necessarily would suggest to a Depart- Justice Department operating independently from the White House to pursue something in some way or another. I first, Look, I was not in, because I worked in the White House and I did not work in the Justice Department, I was not involved in those cases. I was not involved in how they were done or any of their decisions. That's why I specifically wrote that passage in the book, because I wanted to have a conversation about, like, this is a very legitimate debate about that you raised, and a very legitimate concern. And Eric Holder, as I remember correctly, made some policy changes to address these very specific concerns later in the administration. Should it have happened earlier? Yeah. That is a very fair point to make. That, that is that, a very fair point to make. That same so, show, we had Matt Miller, who was Holder's uh, uh, press chief uh, during that time, yeah. on, and he did a mea culpa. He uh, acknowledges that um, uh, the Justice Department went too far. Um, do you share his belief that the uh, Obama-Holder Justice Department went too uh, far in pursuing leaks to reporters? Yes, but let me say this with, with this okay. one important caveat, which is, I didn't, like, Matt worked in the Justice Department. He had knowledge of those things. I was learning about these things, as I should be in my job, with the same amount of information that everyone else in the public had and when it happened. And so, like, based as a consumer of the information, what I've seen, does that seem like the right thing to do? No. Do I have the full context that everyone else has and maybe Matt probably has? No. I think that we should, it is very important that reporters should be able to do their jobs Free of interference. I so do Dan, also think it is important. Let me let me just say one other okay, thing. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I do I do think it's important that we are serious. I don't like let's separate. Let's just for one second. Let's just be very clear when we're talking when we talk about the leaks of classified information. That is that is that is a law that you are breaking. I I had the highest security clearance that I could have in my job in the White House. Took it very seriously. We were told a thousand times over and over again that if that it is illegal to get that information out, lives were at stake in many cases. And so I understand why governments take the protection of classified information incredibly seriously. Does that mean that they should interfere with reporters doing their jobs? My opinion is no on that. And I think we should be very, very careful about that. And the burden should be incredibly high. It did. Does it seem likely that that people went too far in some of those cases, particularly the James Rice case? From my perspective, it certainly seems yes. I say that from someone who was not involved in the decision or has full context, but yes, I do, I do think that I would agree with Matt on that point. And I, this is, I was still in the White House when Holder made those changes, and I think they were the right changes to make. 
So, Dan, I, I want to get back to um, the lessons uh, that you uh, you draw from from that first encounter with fake news over the, the birth certificate. But before we do that, just really quickly, there was a fascinating um, anecdote in your book that also goes to the relationship between uh, communications people in the White House and reporters. And, you know, a lot of your book is a kind of a lamentation on the, the post-truth world that we now live in. Um, and you said that you took the advice of all of your predecessors who said the most important thing uh, in that job uh, as communications director at the White House um, is uh, in dealing with reporters is to never lie and that you were faithful to that uh, that um, advice, uh, except that in one instance, you were not really honest uh, with the press. And I think it was at a Christian Science Monitor breakfast where you were asked about a particular foreign policy initiative. So tell us that story. So at the time, the United States had been working secretly on uh, restoring diplomatic relations with Cuba. And centered around that was the, uh, was the release of a man named Alan Gross, who had been in prison in Cuba for a while. And he, and he had very seriously declining health. And there were very real fears in the United States government that if, if a deal was not come to, that he would die in the Cuban prison. And around this time, so I had been... I had been brought into the circle on this when it came time to start thinking about it, how and when it would be rolled out, the, the politics around it, the rollout strategy, the communications. And so I had, I had been read into this, pro, to, into this initiative, uh, had been for a few months, I guess, probably when this uh, Christian Science Motto breakfast came. And I got asked a question. I was talking about the purpose of the, of the media event I was doing was to sort of, sort of put a talk about how Obama was going to approach the last two years coming out of what was a tough 2014 midterm election. And I was asked by a reporter from McClatchy who uh, covered uh, the, who had Miami as part of her beat about whether in the, I had talked about a bunch of things Obama would do post-election. Like now the election we have, we do X, Y, and Z. And she said, among those things, will there be uh, a new effort around Cuba? And I had not prepared for this question. I was caught off guard, and I had not really thought about what I would say in this instance. And in my head in the moment, I was very torn as what to do here, because if, if, if my answer had led to a feeding frenzy, the deal was not done yet. It was far from done. We were uh, weeks away from it being done. It led to a feeding frenzy that suggests, oh, and it had, one important point here is it had been said multiple times that if to, in the meetings on this, if this were to come out before a deal being done, it's likely the Cubans would walk away from the table because they were all, we had politics at home. They also had politics at home. And the, and so now we're faced with a situation where how do I answer this question in a way that uh, tries to adhere to the view that, that we, you should never lie, protect classified information, like my legal obligation to protect classified information, and also just not achieve the first two things without uh, essentially de facto announcing this initiative, therefore blowing it up, and therefore potentially leading Alan Gross to die in a Cuban prison. And so I sort of stumbled around an answer that, uh, that I tried to hang my hat on the, on the, 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 the I parsed the question beyond its actual uh, beyond recognition. Where the I tried to the the question was will there be a new initiative after the election? There was an old initiative before the election that would be announced after the election, and I basically tried to say no, there would be some nothing new, uh, but I knew 
I went, I, I was definitely in a gray area and probably beyond a gray area. And maybe if but I you, give it a forethought, go ahead. Well, you see, you, but you think it was, it, what you said was dishonest, but justified. Is that fair? I, I think that I, I walked as close. I mean, I think that's an appropriate answer. I mean, and, and, and by, the, by the way, take, take Alan Gross um, out of the equation. What if, the, what if it had just been about protecting uh, a hugely important uh, diplo- diplomatic initiative? It, yeah, I think that is a fair characterization of what I said. I think the Alan Gross thing in particular was like this all happens in under two seconds, right? Like that's my you're, – you're, I have no time to process all of the various um, elements of it. And uh, so in the interim, the thing I kept thinking about was Alan Gross. And there were been communications with his wife at the time. And there was just a lot of real concern about his health. And we were getting briefed on the latest reports on his health from his attorney, I believe, who would, who'd actually had contact with him. And it was alarming. And there was sort of this feeling of a race against time and that. I was the person who was about to fumble this. And would I have thought about it the same way if Alan Gross was not, if his life was not at stake there? Maybe. I think if I had, if I had had more than two seconds of thought about it, I probably could have constructed an answer that would have been, that would have achieved my three goals, but in a better way than the one I currently, than you, the, than you the know, one I did. I, I was also struck by this passage, but even more so by the lesson uh, uh, you drew from that. Uh, it, you know, basically uh, your formulation, and I'll just read you what you wrote. For future White House staff, I would revise the rule about not lying to the press to say don't lie to the press unless a historic diplomatic effort and the lives of American citizens are at risk. And, um, you know, when I read that, I'd just like to ask you, do you realize how that same formulation could have been used by, uh, oh, say, Dick Cheney, to say it's okay to lie to the press about, say, black site prisons, enhanced interrogation techniques, or warrantless wiretapping because, in his view, the lives of American citizens are at risk. Uh, no, and that passage was slightly tongue-in-cheek, just FYI. Well, okay. <laughs> but but, but uh, explain why you uh, reject uh, the comparison between Pfeiffer and Cheney. I mean, I can't even believe we're having this conversation, but... But uh, we are. <laughs> apparently we are. Um, I reject it because I was very, like, I am very, uh, about this discussion, self-flagellating that I did not handle it the way that I would like to have handled it. I don't know that I could have, in two seconds, come up with a better way of doing it, but I was trying to be forthright and honest that these can be very, that the no lying thing is a, is should be a, rock-solid rule that you go by, and sometimes you end up in these gray areas, and you try to do the best you can, and maybe in this specific incident, I didn't do the best I could have, and I, and, and I, maybe there was no better option than the one I did. I wish I'd had time to think of a better option. I don't, I do not know that my two-second answer to Christian Science Monitor is applicable to a years-long campaign to convince the American people that we should go to war in the wake of 9-11 against the country. Right, I was going to say, I was going to say, in one instance, in one instance, it's, it's, it's about promoting, uh, you know, peace. And the other instance, it's about, it's about, you know, prosecuting a war that many people thought was an illegal war. Okay. I want to, but I want to give a a, a fight for a chance to, uh, to talk about the lessons um, that, that he drew 
uh, from um, from the Obama administration's um, kind of uh, encounter with with fake news um, because they're they're interesting and they're important and uh, uh, and they have a lot of uh, you know uh, significance going forward. So talk about that a little bit. Well, I think that the first, the best way to look at this first is that uh, one, if I could do it all over again, I would have put the birth certificate, the full version of the birth certificate, out in the very beginning of the process. Now, you have to recognize that even with that, there's going to be some part of the country that you're not going to convince that is a product. Some of that is just that we've always had a, a, a group of people in this country who are willing to believe conspiracy theories, whether it's Elvis Presley being alive or the moon landing or JFK. But it also was just the fact that in a world where you, where you have sort of this right-wing media apparatus, you're not going to break through that bubble. But you need to respond to these things uh, right away. So my lessons are... One, nothing is too crazy to believe, not to believe. So even the crazy, though, as a campaign or a White House or a politician or whoever else, even when you, if, if you see something that's starting to go viral on Facebook or is out there circulating, and you're like, no one's going to believe that. That's a mistake because in our sort of weaponized media and social media, uh, political environment, anything can, can take hold. And, that's a lesson that doesn't succeed when a lot of these stories that were circulating on Facebook about, like the Pope endorsing Trump or ISIS endorsing Hillary, that weren't responded to should have been responded to. Um, one, I think it's very important that Democrats, like as politicians and journalists and podcasters, if you will, we spend all of our time on Twitter, we think about Twitter, we're reading Twitter, but all the action's happening on Facebook. And that's where these things are living, that's where they're spreading, that's where the response needs to be. And so Democrats need to find ways to leverage Facebook in order to combat these things and also get our fact checks to go viral. Because what's happening is the outrageous fake news is going viral, and our responses are basically on politifact.org or in the, like a New York Times blog post and then not going anywhere else. Um, and then, are, you, are you in favor of any further regulation, government regulation of Facebook, or do you think this is just a, a case where um, – uh, Democrats have to learn how to use it better and defend against what what others are putting on Facebook. Both, both I think. I think. I think that I am not an expert on uh, monopolies and monopolistic behavior. So there is something deeply concerning about the amount of the advertising market that is uh, that is controlled by Facebook and Google and what that does for competition in this country. But like just on its face, that seems concerning. Whether, whether there is a legal recourse to that, I'm not an expert on. But I, think, I, but I think Democrats cannot wait around for there to be some better regulation of Facebook. We have to, de- we have to do, uh, deal with the Facebook we currently have before us. And I know that there are very well-meaning people at Facebook who are trying to solve some of these problems. But as I write in the book, there is no uh, – ultimately, I think Facebook is limited in what it can do because this is their business model. And, it's, and it, I compare it to the NFL trying to solve the concussion problem. There are things you can do around the margins, but, but at the end of the day, it's a, like football, it is what it is, and we have to, we have to learn to deal with it. And, and I think we also have to – and then the last thing I'd say is everyone with a phone in their pocket now has the power, has agency in this battle, and they can use their, their contact on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or on their text chain to fight back against fake news. And, and Democratic campaigns need to build the tools to give them to make it easy to push back on these things. So that when you see something happening on, on you know, you, you see, a, you see a, a you know, fake news happening, 
you have a way to quickly and easily distribute real information to as many people as possible. I have worked on campaigns for 20 years. We spend so much time preparing everyone who goes to doors and gets on the phones with how to answer all the questions. Yet all of our supporters are saying all day long on the internet, interacting with people and interacting with news. And we don't give them, we don't make it easy for them to tell the truth about the candidates and spread information. And that's the, that's the technological and organizational challenge that we need to update uh, within the party. I, I wanted you to assess uh, Trump's use of Twitter uh, uh, to undermine uh, Mueller, the Mueller investigation. I mean, when he goes on about the witch hunt and about the 13 angry Democrats and why isn't Mueller looking into Crooked H? Um, do you think that's an effective use of Twitter for him? Um, do you think he's actually, uh, you know, achieving anything um, important uh, f- uh, for himself when he does that? Uh, yes, I do. I think it is primarily catharsis for him more than it's some sort of strategic grand plan. But what Trump is doing is, I think, interesting, which is I'll give you a I'll give you the bizarro nice version of this, which is. In 2008, when we were campaigning, we knew, like it was before we won Iowa and the campaign took off, we knew from all of our polling that people wanted to support Barack Obama. Democrats did. They liked him. They were inspired by him. They just weren't sure about him yet. Could he win? Did he have what it takes, et cetera? And so a huge part of our campaign, to use the words of David Pluff, was were to create a permission structure for people to do what they wanted to do. What Trump is doing is creating is trying Republican politicians and Republican voters do not they want to side with Trump on this because Republican politicians because they think it's in their political interest Republican voters because they they invested in Trump and they've probably taken some crap for it and so what he is he is giving them permission to dismiss the Mueller investigation by muddying the water and I think he has been quite effective at that because I believe that that. If the only recourse for, for legal consequences for Trump is through impeachment through a, either a Republican Congress or a closely split Congress, then Trump has already succeeded in ensuring he will not face legal consequences because he has, he has convinced enough of the Republican base that he's given enough of the Republican base and the Republican politicians some sort of permission, some sort of excuse and not by Mueller's argument. He has not succeeded with the broader swath of the American people, but that's not his goal. Trump is a niche communicator. He's only trying to reach that 38 to 43% or whatever else. He's not trying to speak to a single person who didn't vote for him or didn't vote. And so it's a different approach that other presidents have taken. Uh, I think it's one that's not particularly good for democracy or the country in general, but I think he has succeeded in muddying the waters enough that, like, absent a video of a handshake deal between Putin and Trump for millions of dollars in cash investments in Trump properties, plus some hacking, plus some sanctions relief. Videotape of a discussion of that between Trump and Putin. If that were to be delivered to Paul Ryan's desk tomorrow, the Republican House would do almost nothing with it. I think so that he's achieved that. Well, they, they, they'd say it was a fake. Uh, it was, they'd say it was a fake video. Yeah. Um, hey, uh, Dan. Yeah. Last question. Um, we got uh, congressional elections coming up in the fall. I saw Obama was out there uh, doing fundraisers in California the other day. Mm. Uh, what role do you expect Obama to play in the midterm elections? And uh, are you going to be a part of it? Uh, I 
I spend, I still do, like a lot of people, we always say you can leave, leave the Obama White House, or, but you can't leave the Obama family. And so, like a lot of Obama's political advisors, I still talk to his team and to him about political stuff as it comes. Uh, not in any sort of formal or super regular basis, but every once in a while. Um, my expectation is that he will be on the campaign trail, uh, campaigning for Democrats and for uh, I'm sure at all levels of the ballot. Uh, you know, he did that in, in 2017 uh, in New Jersey and Virginia. He did robocalls in the Alabama Senate race. So I think you'll see fundraising in the near term and then uh, actual campaigning on the fall. And I think he will enjoy getting out there. Hey, thanks for joining us, uh, Dan. Absolutely. Um, very good of you. Uh, and uh, uh, congratulations on the book. Hope it does well. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Thank all you. Right. Take care. Thanks to Phil Lacavora and Dan Pfeiffer for joining us on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Talk to you next week. <laughs>